you don't have your own Bible and would like to use the one that's in the chair or pew, you turn to page 1007. Make it convenient. (laughs) This is the third study we've had in Hebrews 10. Leading up to uh, some time we'll spend in chapter 11, speaking of is the chapter on faith, but some very important things to deal with leading up to that chapter. Beginning with verse 32, the top of the page, if you've got the Pew Bible there, page 107. <clears throat> but recall the former days when... After you were enlightened, that is, after you came to Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for. And then he quotes from the Old Testament yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Thus the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Lord, bless us to understand and live out your word. We come weak and helpless and ignorant and, Lord, by nature, hard-hearted. But we thank you that by your spirit you dwell in our midst And by your spirit, Lord Jesus, you teach us and conform us to your love. Do you conform us and enable us to believe you and increase in our faith and Lord to continue to the end that we might receive the reward in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your work in our lives, even this morning. Amen. To jump right in, there are two parts of this study. Section and the first they come from two verbs, verse 32, recall, and then verse 35, do not throw away. So we'll take the recall or remember as don't forget and then don't throw away. Okay, that's the two sections. Don't forget. Don't throw away. And it's interesting, he's not saying don't forget in particular the Word of God, but don't forget what God did in you. Don't forget God's grace in your life as you yourself endured in a former time. And now they're facing a time now when some of them in their midst are falling away. And he's calling them to a former time to remember, don't forget what happened earlier. He says you endured right after the right at the time you were converted, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Now, this this struggle 
is the word that we get athletics from, athlesis. So it had to do, even in that day, with the contest of the Olympic Games. And it was used to uh, refer to any kind of struggle or combat. But it did retain that meaning that it was a struggle contending for a prize. It was a struggle with an end in view. And you endured that struggle. You, you get the same feel at uh, the beginning of chapter 12 where he says, run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's that endurance and that Olympic uh, image again, contending for this prize, this reward of having Christ in all of his fullness in the final day. So there's that forward look and he calls it, though, a struggle of suffering. It was marked by suffering. The, the very nature of the struggle was the pain and loss and deprivation that was endured in it. But they endured, they remained. And this word endure has in, regularly in the Old Testament the meaning of to wait. For instance, in the Greek translation of Psalm 130, verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. That's the same word to endure, to wait. Sometimes it's used to even say somebody hung back, they remain somewhere. So it's got that idea of remaining. Or Psalm 33:20, our soul waits for the Lord, for he is our help and our shield. And this is one of my favorite uh, verses in the Old Testament, Isaiah 64, 4. From of old, no one is heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. What kind of God is this when we wait for him and he acts for us on our behalf? So you see this idea of enduring, and at first the struggle has a forward look about it. This idea of enduring has this forward look, this waiting. It's, it has a Lord focus. It centers on waiting on Him, wanting Him, looking for His intervention. In short, you could say this person is holding out for Christ. You offer any other relief to Him. No, I don't want relief. I don't want pleasure. I don't want anything this world can offer. It's kind of like what we started with in Psalm 73. I don't desire anything on this earth. I want Christ. And if it means loss right now, fine. I'm holding out for Christ. You're offering me the world? No, I'm holding out for Christ. That's who I love. That's what I want. And I want him in all the fullness in his glory in that final day. So he is enduring, waiting for God's intervention in the midst of this painful suffering. And then he begins to enlarge on what it looked like. And you'll see there's what they suffered. He says, you were public, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Then there are two lines that speak about their participation in other people's suffering. You were sometimes publicly exposed, but sometimes you were partners with those. And then the next line also speaks of that, having compassion with those in prison. And then he comes back to what you suffered. So there's kind of an ABBA, you see. What you did and then two lines of what you participated in and back to what happened to you. So he says, as to what happened to you, you were publicly exposed. This word publicly exposed is the word we get theater. Okay, theadro. So it's to be put on a stage, to be 
openly uh, abused. And the idea of reproach here is that uh, you were exposed to ridicule and held up to derision. Held up to public shame. In 1 Corinthians 4, 9, Paul says of himself, we became a spectacle, you see. To be just watched and ridiculed, not admired, but just to laugh at. People gathering around just so they can heap derision and reproach upon us. And he says, that's what you bore, that reproach. This later, as we'll see in chapter 11, it says of Moses that he turned away from the riches of Egypt, and he had them all, to bear the reproach of Christ. I mean, he had the world at his feet, the, the richest guy in the world, everything you could ask for in the, world, in the way of worldly pleasure. He turned away, and he held the reproach of Christ to be greater treasure. Well, I'm like, oh man, I just hate this, but you know, what will happen? No, it was his treasure to be identified. Even speaking of Moses in the Old Testament before the time of Christ, now the writer is looking back, seeing everything consummated in Christ, saying that he left all of this to bear the reproach of Christ. And later in chapter 13, the writer to these same people says, let's go outside the gate. Uh, thinking back, imaging Christ being crucified outside the city like a piece of garbage. He said, let's go out and let's identify with him. Let's bear his reproach together. You see, that's the idea, though, of I will associate myself with him and have more and more of him, more of his fellowship, even if it means I lose my life, anything but losing Christ. And so our endurance and our struggling is, has this final end in view of Christ himself. And this is why in verse 34 he can say, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Amazing. F.F. F. Bruce says this large scale of eviction of this nature, and, and we think the, the best, this may, it could have occurred in Palestine, but the stronger evidence is that this was written to those in Rome and occurred around 49 A.D. This that he's describing. And if you read Acts 18, 1 and 2 with uh, Priscilla and Aquila being thrown out of Rome because of Claudius, uh, this seems to be the best event uh, that is being described here. And of those things, we, we have a, an idea as to what goes on in that kind of eviction. Uh, Philo writes about it. Uh, Eleven years earlier in Alexandria, Egypt, the Jews were so evicted. In this case, it was likely some Jews and some Christians because the Jews were attacking the Christians when uh, the, part of their number had become Christians. And so Claudius got sick of it and he threw a whole bunch of people out of Rome. But when you get thrown out, then your possessions, your house is just there. You don't have time to pack up and leave. You just have to get out. And so the looters come and take everything away. And if the looters don't take it away, then the authorities come in and confiscate it. And that's what happened to them. They just pushed out of town and you come back to nothing if you ever come back. And that's what happened to them. And yet it says... They joyfully accepted the plundering. Why? Because they were so convinced of their better property. In fact, the same word is used there. You 
accepted the plundering of your property because you had a better property. <laughs> it's like a guy's being robbed, you know, right outside in an alleyway and and the, he hands over his wallet and and he walks away just smiling and his wife says, what are you smiling about? He says, well, I gave him seventy dollars, but he didn't know about the seventy thousand I have attached to here. You know, I don't care if I lost seventy dollars. It was nothing to me. He didn't touch what was really important. And that's why they felt this was this was nothing. You lost everything. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I've got this glorious possession that so outshadows it. And it's permanent. Notice it's an abiding one. It'll never be robbed. It'll never be taken away. It'll never be diminished. And that wasn't just a play thing for them. I wasn't just like a little playhouse, a make-believe. It was real, a real possession, so convinced of it, they just shrugged their shoulders and rejoiced in the true possession that they had in Christ Jesus. So, you see this in chapter 11 a lot as they anticipate a better country, a better life, uh, the homeland, all of these kinds of thoughts. Are found Well, not only what they suffered, you see, from this uh, public reproach and affliction and joyfully accepting the plundering of their property, but they identified with those who were ill-treated. This word partner is the word uh, related to kononia, we know, fellowship. So it means they had solidarity with, they stood with, they were loyally committed to their brothers and sisters, particularly, he said, you had compassion on them, sympathy with them in prison. And we know that means that, you see, when you're in prison, you might starve, you might not have clothes. They, you normally weren't fed. If you were going to eat, people had to bring food. So just picture this. They're out trying to wipe out Christians and they're Christians in prison, and so you show your little head around there, what's going to happen to you? They might just turn around and throw you in jail as well. And that's the meaning when Jesus is talking in Matthew chapter 25. He's speaking of this kind of situation. He says, I was in prison, and you visited me. Now, prison ministry, we, we do think that... Uh, uh, the prison ministries that we know of now are excellent. It, we need to preach the gospel into the prisons. But the prison ministry there was very different. It was believers thrown into prison because they were believers and other believers uh, risking being thrown into prison themselves because of their identifying. And even then, Jesus said, of the goats that were not on his right hand, that would be cast into everlasting fire. I was in prison and you didn't come to see me. And then I say, well, I would have been thrown in jail, too. I mean, you can't expect me to. I mean, I just had to. Yeah, you're going to go to jail. All right. See, Jesus, he said, I needed clothes and you clothed me and and I was I was hungry and you fed me. And he's talking about dire circumstances here, circumstances in which you would be endangered. And we have to preach to ourselves to even do it. And there's no danger involved. That's the frightening thing. Let me ask you, what, what danger have we had? And yet 
We're just too busy. We just got too many TV shows that we want to watch. That's our problem. Their problem was they might have gotten killed. And yet, they became partners and they had compassion on those in prison. You see, by so identifying with God's people, they were like Christ because he identified himself with us. And what happened to him because of that? He was crucified. See, he took up our cause and became one with us and became our head over his people. And because he identified with us, he eventually then bore our sin. So his commitment to us meant certain death. No, no surprise then, he says, if you're going to follow me and live out my love, if, if my spirit, which enabled me to lay down my life and my identification with my people, dwells in you, then you will identify with my people as well. And you will manifest my love and your willingness to suffer for their sake. I, I can't escape that logic. I can't escape the fact that we're to show the very love of Christ. As he showed to us. And remember, as Jesus said to those sheep on his right, he says, I was in prison and you came to see me. He takes it personally, doesn't it? So we're to show our relationship to Christ that we are like him and that we have truly trusted in his grace and been touched by that grace. And so we're living out that grace of the one who endangered himself for us. And then we show our relationship to one another that we are one body and we see our brothers and sisters as so belonging to Christ, so united to Christ to minister to them is to minister to Christ. We can't divide between those and say, well, I've got a relationship with Jesus, but I don't have a relationship to his people. He says in that you did this, you did it to me. You came to me. And isn't it interesting that first Corinthians thirteen seven says that love bears all things. Believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. You see, love endures. Love sees the hope and the reward of having Christ and the reward of giving yourself up to His will. So it believes and it hopes and therefore it bears and endures whatever it has to do to express itself in love. That's the way love works. So 1 Corinthians 13 is just exactly what's being said right here in Hebrews 11. And then he says, don't throw it away. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw your your confidence uh, in Christ's work, which brings you into God's presence. It assures you of an everlasting possession. Don't throw this away because you'd be throwing away your friendship with God through Christ. You'd be throwing away your sonship, your inheritance. It means also if you throw away your confidence in Christ, you're going to put your confidence in something else for life. If you put your confidence in having friends at school and you don't want to sacrifice those friendships, if it means suffering for Christ, then you said, this is going to be my life. This will be my reward. This is my salvation. Are these relationships? I throw away my confidence in Christ. I'll put my confidence in these that would reject me otherwise. Or I put my confidence in the pleasures that I will not give up for him. 
It means that we would despise our reward. It says later in chapter 11 that Esau did this. He despised his birthright. To despise all that we would have in Christ Jesus in the final day for something of either relief or pleasure on earth. He says, don't throw away your confidence. Don't. You just feel he's, he's almost pulling his hair out at this time, thinking of that possibility that these brothers of his and sisters of his would turn away from Christ. Turn away from all that God has offered you and he's offered you everything. He's offered you himself. He's offered you all the treasures in heaven and earth. Earlier in chapter 3, he says, hold fast your confidence. Here he says, don't throw it away. You can see it's like a treasure. It's, 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 a, it's the treasure. It's, it's also the title deed to all the glories and wonders that Christ will bring your way. Don't throw away that confidence. And notice how he describes this. He says, you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, if you have this glorious confidence in his grace, then it enables you to endure, which ultimately means you do the will of God. It's interesting how in chapter 10, as he distinguishes between the blood of bulls and goats and the blood of Christ, he says, with Christ, when he came into the world, in verse 5, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared me. And then he says, I've come to do your will. The writer of Hebrews says, this is what distinguishes bulls and goats. They didn't obey God. They're just being brought to die. And they're just animals. But one who's took upon himself humanity came with this body prepared for him. And as Lane says, he uh, takes this body and... He, he sees it as a gift that God had prepared as the instrument for accomplishing divine will. I love that. Christ saw this, the Son, as the gift from God prepared as just an instrument by which he would fulfill the will of God. And that's what gave his death effectiveness on the cross. He was giving his will up to the Father. He was obeying the Father by loving his people in this way. And it so perfectly reflected the love of the Father as he laid down his life for his people. So that's what we're about. That's what the endurance is. It's simply giving ourselves up to the will of God to love in whatever way we can, even in the midst of de deprivation. Now, that's, that just turns things on its ear. When you're focused, even in the midst of suffering, not with an implosion of how can I get out of this? Why is the Lord doing this to me? I don't. And of course, we have those kinds of questions. We have those struggles because God's will is mysterious to, it, to us. But in the end, what we lay hold of is, Lord, this suffering is a calling for me to do your will in the midst of this. That's all it is. It's just a different palette for me now to love you and love people in this circumstance. And it may be more difficult. I may have some resources taken away. I may be in pain where I wasn't in pain. But that's still my focus is to do your will. We have need of endurance so that we do the will of God. Which is rooted in our confidence in His grace. 
and our our gratitude for what he's done for us. And it issues in this enduring love and obedience. So in first Peter four, Peter says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You see, while suffering, what do we do? We entrust our souls to God and we continue to do good. We continue to love. We continue to love. And that's the same as 1 Corinthians 13. Love does what? It believes and it hopes and it endures. It endures. Above all, love endures. That's one of the most glorious notes in in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is this picture of love continuing strong in the midst of everything to pour itself out for others. Is there not a greater picture of Jesus Christ? Love enduring. Love enduring even to the cross. Even on the cross, Father, forgive them. Even on the cross, seeing the... Uh, the thief on the cross drawn to him, even on the cross seeing to the needs of his own mother. Love pouring out of Christ to the end, enduring. Love endures. That means love escapes self-pity, doesn't it? Love doesn't implode. Love doesn't, in the end, whine and complain and grumble. Love trusts and love endures and love finds in the glorious Christ resources to give itself away. Well, we don't have time to deal with uh, this quote from Habakkuk, but I just want to touch on verse 39. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. John Hooper Writing from prison, who had had all of his goods confiscated, and he was awaiting a terrible death there in England. He wrote this, facing death. There is neither felicity, that means happiness, or adversity of this world that can appear to be great if it be weighed with the joys or pains in the world to come. There's no happiness or pain in this world that can appear to be great if it be measured by the joys and the pains of the world to come. Let those dominate your life. Let those feed your life. Let those support you and give you endurance and hope to pour yourself out in love to others. For your reward will be great. Isn't it interesting that that God tells us so much about reward. And he's not talking about a whole bunch of stuff, you know. Hey, you have a car now. Let me tell you about the cars you'll have in heaven, you know. He's talking about the reward of full enjoyment of God. The full enjoyment of knowing what it is to love and be loved by God. And it's interesting that this word shrink back in the Hebrew, in the Greek it was translated shrink back in the Hebrew, it means Puffed up. I want to make this connection. It's really those who continue to be full of self and puffed up. Who really in their making a deal with God have fine print in their dealing with God. 
You know the uh, car advertisements when they'll say, you can have a brand new Toyota and it's only $159 a month. You know, and then you add it up and you think, that's the way, $159 a month for six years, that would still leave $15,000 not counting interest. What's the deal? And then at the end of the advertisement, you hear, you know, if you could hear all of that, it would say, you've got to pay $4,000 down, and then there's a $12,000 balloon payment, you know. Well, you don't hear all that. Well, see, in a kind of reverse way, what we do with God is instead of completely trusting, instead of really seeing our sin and, and seeing the devastating travesty of our sin and helplessly depending upon him alone for salvation and forgiveness and, and being overwhelmed with gratitude, we kind of come with the small print. Lord, I'll give you my life if, if you'll just keep making me pretty comfortable. If I, if I don't get sick or friends of mine get sick, Lord, if things work out, it, we have all of these ifs. In other words, we don't value him. In other words, we're still puffed up. We're still self-dependent. We still want our own way. We still won't trust him completely. Now, I know we don't trust him perfectly. But sometimes it's our way of life that we will not give over our lives ultimately ever. So really, those who shrink back are those who are not really helpless. Who are really not helpless. Who really think, man, eh, I'm sick, but I'm not dead. I need help, but I'm not helpless. But the helpless are so bound to him. Listen to Hervius as he says this, and we will close. He who is justified by the works of the law, that is, thinks that he's got something to hold on to, is not mine, God says, but he's his own just person because he's justified not by me, but by himself. And he glories not in me, but in himself. But he who's justified by faith in me is my just one because he's justified by the gift of my grace. And he attributes it to that, to my grace and not to himself. He belongs to me. And he knows it. See, when you know you're forgiven and you rejoice in it and you rest in it, then you think, oh, Lord Jesus, I'm yours. And I will be possessed by nothing else but you. Otherwise, we hold on. We think, I've got some reserve righteousness I can stand on. I've got some reserve strength and wisdom that I don't really need you on. And sooner or later, Satan will call your hand. He will call your hand. May we, by God's grace, give ourselves up to His will. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank You for Your glorious work on our behalf to die in our place, to bear our sin so that we can, in the, in the words of this writer earlier in this chapter, can come into your presence with boldness and full assurance that we belong to Jesus Christ. And just as accepted as Jesus is, so we are accepted. Oh, Lord, that is the confidence that we need.
the confidence of your love, which gives us confidence to endure anything in this world because we are convinced of what you will give us here and now and what you will give us forever and ever. We are confident in your love for us in Christ Jesus. And we do not want anything to stand in the way of it. And we will sell out to nothing. Oh, Lord, we all confess that we many times fall short of this. We confess that we have sinned against you in this regard. We confess that there have been times where we count other things as way more important than you. And we come now to confess that to you and say, Lord, we have sinned against you. We ask for your forgiveness and we ask for you to renew in our hearts that we treasure you, that we love you above all else, that we trust you above all else, that we have a confidence in you that we will not throw away. Oh, Lord, give us that grace, even as we come to the table now. For We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.